This Week at Hope Point. So you got to ask yourself a question right now. Whoever you're following in life and whoever you're making a big deal about, do they have the character and the capacity to hold the key that's going to get you in the place you want to be when it's all over? Imagine going on a trip for the purpose of visiting a historic building or touring a great museum. But when you get to the front of the building, there's a sign on the door that says, closed for repairs. You're disappointed, your family is disappointed, but there's nothing you can do, the door is closed. But as you turn to walk away, someone working on the grounds asks if they can help you. After you tell them how far you've traveled, they reach in their back pocket and pull out a key. And to your amazement, they open the door and allow you to stay a while. The most exciting thing that Jesus does for us is open doors to serve Him in ways that we would have never dreamed possible. And just as we convince ourselves that the project is too big or that we are too weak, He opens a door and gives us strength to serve Him even when the task is difficult. Come enjoy today's study of Revelation 3, where Jesus says to the church at Philadelphia, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. On October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther, a professor of theology at the University of Wittenberg in Germany, nailed a list of 95 complaints against the church that was being dominated by corruption of that day. And as was the custom of anybody who wanted to debate the church, you simply nailed the purpose of the debate on the doors. All he was asking for was debate. He got a lot more than that. He, by God's grace, was given the key to unlock the greatest spiritual revival that's ever happened since Pentecost and the birth of the church. He was the human author of the Protestant Reformation. At that time, the church was in a lot of trouble, led by a lot of corrupt people, to the point that no one had access to the Word of God except the leaders, and the leaders were telling people, you can actually purchase salvation, a piece of paper called an indulgence. If you pay enough money for it, you'll be saved and you can save the life of someone else you buy that piece of paper for. God's people without the Bible could only believe that what they had heard was right until Luther nailed his 95 complaints against that door and all of a sudden what looked like a common door turned out to be the most significant door in the history of, of the church. As we look at the Church of Philadelphia, which is church number six in our study of the seven churches in Revelation, what we're encouraged by is the promise of Jesus to open a great door for them. Revelation 3, 7, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these are the words of him who's holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Most of the time when we hear the word open door, like, wow, God gave me an open door, we're talking about an opportunity for growth, expansion, maybe in your business or something else. I have an open door. I have an, you know, there's something available for me that was not previously Available. The city of Philadelphia knew very well what open doors in business were all about. They were positioned right in the middle of a great commercial route called the Silk Road. It went all the way from Europe west to the far east to China. And many people who did business both ways, coming from Rome all the way to China, Mongolia, passed through Philadelphia. And so you can imagine how exciting it would be if you were a believer 
meeting somebody from Italy, sharing Christ with them if they come to Christ, all of a sudden you turn them into a missionary that's going to China. It was quite the open door. Is that what Jesus is talking about? It could be. Paul talked about open doors in these terms of new ministry. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, he was basically apologizing to the Corinthians why he was delayed in coming. He said, but I'm going to stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened for me. Literally in the Greek, it reads like this in, in the Greek vernacular, a mega, a mega opening of divine gospel energy has been set loose. And so Paul stayed there three years in Ephesus because we know the opportunities for ministry were, were unbelievable. You know, when I look at the church right now here at Hope Point, I can only uh, sum up everything my heart is feeling like right now with the word I, have, I am looking at an open door. We are looking at an open door as we've never seen before. I've been around long enough in 35 years of ministry to have seasons of life, my life where it looks like every door of opportunity is closing. Now it looks like every opportunity for open doors are, are, now, are now opening. Just this past Monday night, I was in the home of a couple. It's interesting, this was happening in the world right now. The husband is from Belarus. Uh, the wife is from Moscow. And they came to the States in 2017, and uh, I've been trying to get w with them for about a year to hear their story, how in a very dark part of the world, how Jesus opened a door of faith, and they gave their life and are now into part of the kingdom of God. They wanted to share their story of how they became Christians. And of course, I would have never met them had there not been another set of open doors in this great ministry here at church called English Crossing, where every Monday and Tuesday night, those doors out there are open to internationals from people in uh, many different, uh, from many different ethnicities and parts of the world. And dear volunteers from part, uh, not just this church, all over the county come and love them. And that's how I met this couple from uh, Russia and, 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 and Belarus. And so I'm grateful for English Crossing that is giving people in our community the, the belief, we welcome you, come here, and you will experience the love of God while learning English and learning, learning the gospel. And, you know, that's just one of the many ministries that God is doing here. And I look at all the work in the inner city, um, you know, through uh, Sidewalk Hope and all the children that will be in heaven because of, of the open doors of ministry to the, to the four places, the four inner city projects where we work. And then I think about the college campuses between crew and campus outreach and uh, uh, FCA, Fellowship of Christian Athletes. We're on every college campus in the upstate and so many open doors among many nationalities. And then I think how all of that relates to our ultimate desire to go to the nations and to see them gathered in the churches where we have many workers, 37 partnerships around the world, a lot of which we can't really declare publicly to you for their safety, but reaching Hindus and Muslims and, and those from other religions. And I think what excites me most about that picture is to think about that door that was just opened for me by someone 
on, um, on, 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 on the welcoming team. And then the other door that was open for me at uh, 8.30 this morning by somebody in the parking lot. And all the people that are literally opening physical doors so that we can go be a part of God opening doors around the world. Years ago, I, I, I wanted to ask you this question before I move. I want to say, you know, the most exciting door in the world that's ever been opened, there is a most exciting door, and that is the door to the kingdom of God. We're going to look at this more extensively as we go to the next chapter, but I think a teaser is, is uh, in store right now. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, John, having a supernatural experience while writing this book to the seven churches, actually gets to do what all of us want to do, and that is take a trip one day to heaven. After this, I looked, and there before me, he's in a vision now, and there was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here. This is the message of Jesus Christ to everybody in this room today. Heaven is open. Come up here. Have you ever walked through that door? Have you ever walked through the door that Jesus is open so that you can have a place at the table of God in the city of God to be part of the family of God? Early in my ministry, I heard an evangelist come through town. I don't even know his name, but I wrote down, I remember what he said about people who want to give their life to helping people go through that door. He said, this door is the most important door in the world. It is the door through which men walk when they find God. Men die outside that door as starving beggars die on cold nights in cruel cities. Nothing else matters compared to helping people find the door to heaven. Do you know the kind of man or woman that God uses in his kingdom? It is the person whose heartbeat is captured in the final words of that quote. Nothing matters like helping people find the door to heaven. We live in a harsh world where so many doors are slammed in our face. Start a new business that didn't work out, bankruptcy. You get married and so many things change and you try your best and someone departs, bam, marriage is slammed in your face and one day you're healthy you go to the doctor and you get this diagnosis and all of a sudden your health is gone and health the door of health slammed in your face and yet Jesus Christ says there's a door that is always going to be open for everybody who wants to know God the door that I open with my blood my resurrection to heaven that door will always be open for you. Jesus began his letter by saying he is the reason that any door is ever open anyway. Any doors of goodness come from him. Revelation 3, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right? These are the words of him who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. Well, the key of David is just a reference to Israel's greatest king. Jesus said, I'm going to work through you, David, through your family to establish a kingdom that will never end. Well, David died, so it obviously he wasn't the ultimate possessor of that key. There was another man where that same promise was made in Isaiah 22, 22, a king that we don't know real well, a king named Eliakim. And he also, God said to him, I'm giving you the key 
to a kingdom that will never end. But Eliakim died, so he obviously wasn't the guy. If you read theology enough, you'll come across the word type, T-Y-P-E, and there are types of Christ in the Old Testament. That is, there are people who point. They're representatives. So we might type. So all of these, the key of David, these are David and Eliakim and all other great leaders were just pointers to the one person who does have the key. The key to history, the key to the church's future. Jesus told us about that key already in Revelation chapter 1, 18. I am the living one. I was dead. Now look, I'm alive forever and I hold the keys of death. A lot of great leaders have come and gone in history. I mean, some good, a lot of great ones, a lot of bad ones. But look what we do with our, our, our leaders. We sort of think they're the answer. We put our hope in them and then all of a sudden they die and then we we bring their body to the rotunda in Washington, D.C., and we file past it. And you know everybody that's filing past the body of a president in the rotunda in D.C., do you know what they're saying? Nope, he didn't have the key because he couldn't conquer death. Only somebody who can conquer death has the key for every dream and aspiration in our life. So Jesus is saying, I am reliable and I am capable I have the key. The world is led by men who are either incapable or unreliable. They might have the capacity, but not the character. They may have the character, but not the capacity. But they're all mortal men. They die, not Jesus Christ. He had the power and the character to lead history to its climax and the church to its home in, in heaven. So you've got to ask yourself a question right now. Whoever you're following in life and whoever you're making a big deal about, do they have the character and the capacity to hold the key that's going to get you in the place you want to be when it's all over? Inside heaven's doors, Jesus holds that key to that door. Because Jesus is the key holder, we're not surprised. He said, I'm going to open a door for you, Philadelphia. These are the words of him who holds the key of David. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I, I am very particularly fond of this, how this particular part of the passage ends, that Jesus is giving a key to somebody who has little strength because that gives great hope for me. I'm in the wrong place today apart from the, the strength of God, the grace of God. I love the fact that Jesus Christ opens doors for people who are too weak to open doors themselves. That's the promise there. So who does Jesus open doors for? Those people who can't open doors themselves. He said this. He said he was, he said this is how, this is the purpose of prayer and admission. You don't have door opening strength. Matthew 7, knock and the door will be what? Open for you. That's a passive verb. It's not active. You're not opening a door. It's being opened for you. That's, that's what we confess in prayer is that I'm not strong enough to handle this. And that's why the person who is prayerless is the person who is prideful. Because they're saying, I do have the strength to open this door. Prayer is an admission. I can't, I can't handle this. One of the largest doors in the world 
is in Cape Canaveral, Florida. That building that you're looking at is called the Vehicle Assembly Building. It's where the Saturn V rockets used to be assembled that they would attach to the Apollo spacecraft that would blast our men and women to the moon and back. So the Saturn rockets were built inside that building and then they had to get out somehow and they got out through that door. Do you know how tall that door is? 454 feet tall. It's the largest door in the world and no man can open it. None of us are strong enough for that. It has to be opened by many machines that are on railroad tracks. It's quite a process. Somebody was describing it to me. They'd seen it between the services. But this is the purpose of prayer to ask God to open doors that you can't open in your own strength. Well, the reason, the main reason that we need Jesus in this whole door opening process is you need to understand whenever he opens a door for ministry, beyond that open door is going to come opposition. Yeah, he does give you an open door, but that opens the door to trial because the door is so important. Remember when Paul said, I'm going to stay in Ephesus because it's such, look, look. Verse 8, 1 Corinthians 16, I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door, a mega door, for effective work has opened to me. But then this, I didn't read the rest of it to you. And there are many who oppose me. Every divinely open door will be met with demonic opposition. We're sitting here today, and I can tell you about English Crossing, Sidewalk Hope, all the college ministries, and the global ministries that Hope Point's involved with, and we get excited. I can assure you Satan is not clapping. Woo, that church is on the move. No, he is trying to close doors through creating calamity in your life, calamity in the church, hopelessness, despair, discouragement, many Opposed the Apostle Paul when he stood before that open door. I know that you have little strength, and yet you have not denied my name at the end of that verse. That's, that's what was happening, and in, in, um, that was the pressure. That was the opposition that the church at Philadelphia was facing. The temptation was to deny the name of Christ because of persecution, and they didn't. That was what was trying to close the door. Cowardice. So Jesus said, I'm going to come help you because of what you're facing. That's this promise in verse 9. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they're not, but are liars, I'll make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. This is the second time in our study of the seven churches we've seen this phrase, the synagogue of Satan. I told you last time, just a quick rehearsal, there was a problem in the first century. Many of the people who were coming to Christ were Jews who discovered that everything that had been written in the Old Testament was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So they were in the synagogue and they were coming to Christ. So now you have Jewish Christians in the synagogue with Jews who did not believe, and that's why he calls them, they claim to be Jews, they're, they're, they're not, because a true Jew will believe that the Old Testament points to Jesus. And so these Christians were being cast out, and the reason why it says a, it's a synagogue of Satan, a really a, 
It really translates better, an assembly of slanderers. That's what the word Satan means, the one who slanders. So a synagogue of Satan would be a gathering of people who slander you. So the Christians were slandered in the first century by the Jews of the synagogue. In fact, by the end of the first century, the Jews had developed what was called the 18 benedictions, and the 12th benediction was a prayer against Christians. But this is how the prayer went. O God, for the apostates, let there be no hope, and may the Nazarene perish and be blotted out from the book of life. Nazarene was just another word for followers of Jesus of Nazareth. So there was a lot of tension in the early church between Jews and Christians. And so then, Satan, so then Jesus comes and says, I'm going to make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Well, yeah, that's an interesting phrase. And what, do, how, what does that mean? Well, it could mean a couple things. We know that the end of history, Philippians 2, says that every name will confess Jesus as Lord. You know that. So in some way, a matter of fact, it says every name in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Like every power is going to confess. It could mean that, that there will be this universal declaration even by Christ's enemies, he's Lord. I think there may be a more hopeful answer. Based on a couple verses in Isaiah where we are told about how God's enemies actually become, or the, or, or the, or the people that face enemies, God's people who face enemies, those people become friends of theirs because they're converted. This promise is made to the Jews twice in the book of Isaiah 45, verse 14. This is talk about the nations of Egypt, those that be Muslim nations, and then other pagan nations are mentioned preceding. They, those other nations, God opposing nations, they will bow down before you, Israel, and plead with you, saying, Surely God is with you, and there is no other, there is no other God. So this is a great promise in the book of Isaiah that the nations who once opposed Israel will gather and admit that Israel's God is the God, the only God of the world. Which means by that time, the great prophecy and promise of Romans chapter 11 is that Israel will have come to Christ. So I think when we read this verse in Revelation 3, I will make them, your enemies, come and fall down and acknowledge that Christ is right. I think it possibly could be that these Jews from the synagogue are now worshiping Christ with these Christians that had come out of the synagogue. Because when it says, I'll make them come and bow down, that is the same Greek word for worship. I think you have Christians and former Jews, former Muslim, former Hindus, worshiping just like we see in Revelation 7. I think that's how Jesus is going to make them come and bow. There's going to be a great end gathering of the nations that we definitely see in later, in later chapters. Well, maybe that's the open door. Maybe it's not. I'm telling you, there's a lot of guessing in Revelation, educated guessing. But, but I do know one thing. 
Whenever you face opposition because you're walking through an open door, Jesus says, I will come help you. That we know is taught in the book. And look, look how he says this in verse 10. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that's going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. Wow. This verse unleashes the rest of Revelation and all the trials that are coming. And this verse, unfortunately, in my opinion, has been misinterpreted by a lot of people to say that this promise to the Church of Philadelphia is the promise to the church universal that Jesus will keep us from suffering. I don't think, I don't think that's the way to interpret I'll tell you why in a moment. I think the best person to look for of what he means by this is Jesus himself, his own commentary on this verse. In the final night of his life, as he was about to be nailed to a cross, which we would say falls under the category of suffering, he's talking to disciples who are about to suffer, and he makes this promise to them, this prayer for them, I mean. John 17, 15. My prayer is not that you would take my disciples out of the world. Nope but that you would protect them from the evil one. So he doesn't take us out, but he protects us from becoming followers of the evil when the persecution comes. He protects us from apostasy. He protects us from abandoning the gospel. I just want to tell you the reason why I'm so considerate of the reality that there is suffering, great suffering uh, for 21 centuries, including our own of believers, is because of all the references in the Bible, the New Testament, to suffering that will be part of following Christ. I don't think you can use the promise to the Church of Philadelphia in light of all of these verses. All the top two-thirds of the verses have to do with persecution, suffering because you're a Christian. The bottom Verses have to do with suffering because you live in a fallen body, in a fallen world, that even earth hurts us. Our bodies hurt us. So we're going to suffer. That's not what the church is promised in Revelation. I think you can add all these up and say, Jesus says, I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial, Revelation 3. And then he, he had... He explains that in John 17, my prayer is you would keep them from evil. So that's how he keeps us from the hour, is he keeps us from giving into evil. So he will keep us from denying his name when the pressure is on and we suffer. I recently watched in preparation for all of this series in the churches of Revelation, I watched an interview of a, of, a, of a pastor who pastors in Turkey. And we, we've noted that on a lot of occasions that all of these seven churches are in modern-day Turkey. He pastors in Izmir, which used to be Smyrna, a church that had its own share of suffering. And so the interview that you're about to see takes place many years after he came to Christ. He's an older pastor now. When he was a young man just came to Christ. He was arrested. And the police said, 
who were enforcing the belief of Islam said, we will let you go if you will confess, make this confession. There is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. And this is the story he told of the temptation he felt to deny Christ. Um, I know that we don't have this power, we don't have this strength to not deny Christ. We as people, as mere human beings, will deny Christ to stay away from fear and, and uh, uh, pain. Mm. Um, um, and that's I was, what I was ready to, to, to do, go out. And, and just say there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his messenger prophet. And I looked at the policeman and I started saying it. I thought I was saying it. Um, I thought I opened my mouth and I wouldn't, it just, nothing would come out of my mouth. And I thought my friend right behind me was shutting my mouth. Um, just couldn't understand what was happening. I was mute. I just could not open my mouth. It was just blocked. I turned around, there was nobody behind me shutting my mouth. He gave me strength in times of trouble. Shut my mouth. He did not allow me to deny himself at that moment. And I couldn't say what they wanted me to say. And I'm glad and I praise God that he shut my mouth. Um, and I stayed in, uh, in that not a prison, but a detention place, police detention place, for 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, they released me. But at those days, uh, there were beatings, um, heavy torture. 10 days later, they released me. Um, I didn't know where to go, what to do, um, but I knew one thing, and I knew that I loved the Lord more. Uh, I knew Him better that I knew him 10 days earlier. And that's what persecution and suffering is intended to do. That when you're tempted to abandon Christ and he comes and strengthens you and you say, no, Jesus, you're still the way. You grow closer to him. I was watching. I know many of you have watched so many hours of news over the past five days as we're praying for the church in Ukraine and for believers and for its citizens that they would not lose their freedom and uh, not be overpowered by sheer evil. So I was watching, I, I've, been watching, I've been watching prayer meetings take place in the subway below the city. And I was watching, uh, just yesterday, Lisa and I were watching a family. They couldn't get out of Kiev. They're stuck. They're hearing all the bombings and they're looking at all, hear all the bullets and they're stuck. And so they are, um, they gathered to sing uh, in their apartment not knowing what the future is going to be. And this is a song they were singing. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. And this is what it sounded like when they sang. Father, we ask for this family and many like them that you would 
Spare them if it pleases you and is good for your purposes. Spare them supernaturally. Um, Let them be free to worship you for many years and be great servants of yours on this earth for many years in Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus said he'll hold us. He'll keep us from denying him. Do you know how he does that? He holds us by keeping us holding on to him. He holds us by inspiring us to hold on to him. This is what he said in Revelation 3, 11. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. That when Jesus moves in us, you know, this reference to a crown is a, a crown given to an athlete, a Stephanos crown. At the end of the race, an athlete that won would be given this, this Stephanos crown that he had gone through all of the training and didn't quit and finish the race. And Jesus is saying, I want you to hold on to this, this calling I've got on your life that you have one opportunity on earth, just one. Just one to stand for something to stand, to hold on to that calling and don't lay that crown down. Don't lay that calling down and pick up the calling of comfort. Hold on to the greatest calling in the world to serve the Lord. Hold on to it like you would hold on to your wallet going through a busy train station where you know people are about to pick. You know that Satan is going to encourage you to lay it down, lay your calling down. He says, hold on to your calling. So you can start to see now how all of these verses in Revelation 3 add up. You have kept my word, and by keeping my word is how I hold you. And that's why people who are not in the word will not endure in times of temptation. They've got nothing to hold on to. It breaks my heart that if this is your only input every week, the only time you here scripture is today, no Monday through Saturday. You're really holding on to nothing if this is it. Those who endure hold on to the word their whole life. Let me say one thing about the beginning of this verse. I'm coming soon. You're going to see this a lot of times in the book of Revelation. you see it in the other writings of Peter. You say, well, gosh, that was written, that verse is, is 2,000 years old right now. God must have a different definition of soon. <laughs> well, he does. But I think it's really more literal than that. I think he's telling these believers in Philadelphia, I know that, right, because this is what suffering does. Suffering says, makes you say, I can't endure. I can't make it another day. We've all said that. And then Jesus is saying, just go to church one more Sunday. Read your Bible one more Monday. I'm coming soon. And everybody in this room that's been through trials can admit, wow, out of my despair, all of a sudden, he came. He came. He's going to tell everybody here today that's suffering, I'm coming soon. He's growing your faith. He's coming soon. He's going to give you a new power. You're going to see him in a new way. He's coming. He's coming soon with, with help. Well, let's conclude this study of Revelation as we've done with all the churches, the promises. And there's a lot of them. Got to go quick. Revelation 3.12 says, The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they, will they leave it. The city of Philadelphia was rocked by earthquakes. AD 17, the city was leveled. 
The city was devastated so bad that the Roman emperor Tiberius said, you guys don't even have to pay taxes to Rome for five years while you rebuild your city. Because of that, they made a pillar to him in the middle of the city, to Tiberius. And his name was on it. But nobody was willing to live near the downtown area because they had aftershocks for five years and buildings were continuing to fall. And with this is the story of the world. As history runs headlong to its end, nations will crumble and businesses will go bankrupt and the rich and powerful will fall and presidents and prime ministers will die. Cities will be destroyed by corruption and violence. But the church will live forever and it will be like a pillar in the middle of the city that will not fall. And Jesus said, I'm going to make you a pillar. You feel so weak now. You feel so like nothing. And Jesus said, in the city of God to come, you're going to be as strong and prominent as a pillar, a great pillar like the pillar of Tiberias with its name. The writer of Hebrews said, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be, cannot be shaken. My heart breaks for what's going on in the world now, but do you know what God is doing? Whether or not he saves Ukraine, we don't know. But I'll tell you what he's doing to all of us, especially the people there in that part of Eastern Europe. He's saying the world is falling apart. Be ready. Give your life to a Christ who holds the key that can take you to a kingdom that can never be shaken. That's what he does in worldwide catastrophes. So let's preach that message while we have time. Now the final promise of Revelation. I will write on them the name of my God. I will write on them the people. Like these people wrote the name of Tiberius on the pillar. God says, I'm going to write my name on you. <laughs> I will write on them the name of my God. Jesus says that. And the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Well, this is just <clears throat> exciting. Jesus is going to write the name of God on me. I finally get a tattoo. Yeah. He already has written his name on me. The Bible says once you come to Christ, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. And he's written his name on you, which says, you're mine. You're mine. I love to watch the parents as they take their children to the HP Kids area. They plug their children's name in this machine that Dean has devised and a little sticker, an adhesive sticker comes out. And the last thing that the parent does before the child goes in that room, pop that sticker on their back. You know why? Tell everybody in this church that child's mine. And I'm coming back for him. I'm coming back for her. When God writes his name on you, when he puts his spirit in you, that's his promise of saying, I'm coming back. I'm coming back for you because my name is already written on you. But Jesus concludes this by saying, I'm also going to tell you a new name of God. Oh my goodness, is that not interesting? We know the Bible opens up God being identified as Elohim, the creator of everything. That's used 2,500 times. And then in the book of Exodus, God says, uh, I want you to call me Jehovah, Yahweh. And that's used 6,500 times. 
And there's a lot of variations of Jehovah, like Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Rapha. God's got a lot of names. And then God said, I got a new one you haven't seen. And what he means by that is there's a new disclosure of my kindness. There's a new display of my mercy. Or as Corey Ten Boom says, after she survived the Holocaust and was ready to enter glory. You know what that new name means? The best is yet to come. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from Hope Point Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. If you would like to learn more about us or give to this ministry, please go to our website at hopepoint.org. We hope you can join us again next week.